You're listening to the Monocle Daily first broadcast on the 5th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Houthi militias in Yemen continue refusing to receive the message. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine telegraphs a reshuffle of his top brass and Paris, having correctly banished the e-scooter, sets about the SUV. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Tina Fordham and Stephen DL will discuss the day's big stories. And we'll hear from Martin Sixsmith about his new book, Assessing the Motivations of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Tina Fordham, a geopolitical strategist and founder of Fordham Global Insights, and by Stephen Diel, the writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst. Hello to you both. Good evening. Hello. Um, Tina, your first time on the Monocle Daily, not your first time on Monocle Radio, but as is, well, kind of traditional uh, on the Monocle Daily, we we do ask first-time guests to explain to our listeners who they are and how they arrived here at what is clearly the pinnacle of their career to date. It is the highlight, the highlight of my career. Um, I have been a, a geopolitical strategist for around 25 years, but I did get a start to my pre-finance career in Russia, in fact, um, and in Eastern Europe, looking at what we used to call the post-communist transitions uh, and working in democracy promotion before I went into finance and um, became the first chief global political analyst for a major financial institution. And I now um, have an independent firm, which started pretty much the day after Putin invaded Ukraine, um, <laughs> when I realized I needed an independent platform to um, to say what I really thought. Uh, well, the, the post-Soviet sphere is a theme to which we will be returning, and it is indeed a place to which you have yourself actually recently been returning. That's right. I went to Uzbekistan um, for New Year, which isn't something that people based in London tend to do, but an awful lot of people based in the former Soviet Union uh, definitely do. Samarkand and Bukhara are um, on par with with Rome and, and Istanbul in terms of being jewels of the ancient world. See, I have always fancied Uzbekistan, Stephen. I have never annoyingly yet been. A big hello to our many listeners, I'm sure, uh, in Uzbekistan. Uh, Stephen, you have seamless gear change coming up up here not recently been to uzbekistan but you have been to france two countries which have literally nothing in common (laughs) indeed i have been to france and indeed have discovered also a jewel if you happen to be in northern france um, particularly if you hop off the eurostar at lille then hop on to the metro out to a place called ribo and at ribo there is this wonderful museum called la piscine because funnily enough it's built around a swimming pool and not just any old swimming pool you were going to tell us it was a fish museum. No, 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 no. It's an Art Deco swimming pool. Uh, and it's just full of some fascinating art. There's sculpture, there's painting, there's textiles, there's design. There's some fantastic stuff. There's some not so good stuff. But there is so much to see for anyone with the slightest interest in art. 
So the La Piscina at Ribo, I recommend it. Okay, well, a couple of recommendations for listeners there, but while they're booking their tickets, they can listen to the rest of the daily, which will start in the Middle East, where over the weekend the United States and United Kingdom hit at least 30 more targets in Yemen, part of an ongoing campaign aimed at discouraging Iran-backed Houthi militias based in Yemen from taking pot shots at passing shipping. The latest strikes against the Houthis, which involved fighter aircraft and ship-launched missiles, followed Friday night strikes by the United States against at least 85 targets associated with Iran-backed militias across Syria and Iraq following last week's deadly drone raid on a US base in Jordan. Um, Tina, are we now more or less at perhaps one remove just at war with Iran? I mean, I'm going to calibrate my response because (laughs) I was just thinking about how the reaction in the the press in Tehran was to emphasize that um, no no Iranians had been killed. Mm. And when I line that up against what Biden is dealing with in Washington, what we have is two parties who need to be you know, kind of trading signals of of being tough. And these were a lot of airstrikes. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is quite significant. And I've been at pains to emphasize that um, with the the clients I advise. Is it World War III, as lots of people are proclaiming? It's not. It is risky. The risk of escalation is significant. But we have two countries who don't want to be at war with each other. And I think a big question about the extent to which Iran really controls the the Houthi rebels. Uh, Well, this has been a question that has preoccupied us and indeed all other observers these last few weeks, uh, Stephen, the degree to which Iran directly controls the Houthis or indeed any of its proxies. There is more on that on the current episode of the Foreign Desk as well. Seamless, seamless plug. Um, But Stephen, Tina's right. Uh, There is obvious hostility between Iran and the United States. It is in the interests of both sides to be uh, steadfast, perhaps even aggressive in their dealings with each other, and yet neither of them does actually want open conflict. Um, The US claims it destroyed or damaged 84 of its 85 targets uh, on Friday night and Saturday morning. Do we suspect that they might actually have blown up a lot of very empty sheds? Quite possibly, but I think that with the intelligence they ought to have now, um, they're probably getting quite accurate with these strikes. Um, And the fact that they've continued, I think, is a sign of their uh, intention to, um, to, to show Iran, look, we're doing this. These are supposed to be the guys you're backing. Um, don't try and mess with us. Um, I, I, th- I think Iran is definitely in the, in the weaker position and uh, Iran might be backing the Houthis, but um, I can't see them going to war with America over it. See, I wonder about this, Tina, whether Iran is in fact in the weaker position, because they seem to have divergent interests, to me at least, from the United States. The United States just wants it all to stop. The United States just wants a serene calm to descend over the entire Middle Eastern region. Iran doesn't want that. Iran wants trouble and chaos and it wants to annoy America. So given that America wants a major war even less than Iran does, does Iran actually have a kind of advantage? They can continue to irritate. They can continue to goad. They have an opportunity to undermine U.S. positions and assets in the region, which is a part of a a conflict strategy. Uh, And they have their proxy actors to help carry it out. So as long as Israel continues 
its campaign in Gaza, um, Houthi rebels who remember were only recently attacking Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know they're a, they're a thorn in the side of more than one um, actor in the region. Have a chance to you know to to make trouble uh, and say that they are doing it in support of Palestinians in in Gaza. Um, the ability to con- to control your actions so that they remain sub-threshold in the military parlance isn't necessarily that easy. And that's where we also ought to think about what Beijing thinks about all of this. Um, Beijing wants the U.S. to, you know, to no longer be in its position of global hegemon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't want, one presumes, to, you know, to, to uh, have shipping traffic uh, compromised. So, you know, we have this very high friction, um, disruptive position. You can look at the market reaction, though, and see that, you know, commodities markets aren't taking this seriously at all. Over the weekend, you know, I would have described what we saw as quite serious attacks. Brent crude went up by $1 a barrel. Um just finally on this one, Stephen, is the United States also somewhat bound now by the threshold it has set itself? There was a drone strike on one of its bases the previous weekend, which killed three service personnel. They struck 85 targets across uh, Iraq and Syria. Now, we assume that that probably won't be the last raid on a US facility in the Middle East, and there has been nearly 200 since October. That was the first one that we know of that was fatal to U.S. troops. If there is another one which is as bad or worse, does the United States not then find itself obliged um, to act even more dramatically? I think it does. Uh, I mean, they've gone this far, and however much they talk about, as you put it, wanting a, a blanket peace across the Middle East, they can't allow an attack on on a, an American outfit an American unit and certainly killing American soldiers to go unpunished. They've, they've got to, they're thinking, of course, also the audience back home and the audience back home thinks, you know, never mind whether they make America great again, Americans or, or not. Any Americans being killed abroad, this, this, is, this is terrible. So they, they have to answer it. At the same time, of course, you've got Blinken just arriving in Saudi Arabia today um, and, and you know, trying to push for peace in, uh, in Israel and Gaza um, as part of that blanket coverage. Um, They are trying to spin a lot of plates in the air at the moment. uh, But the one that they're spinning, if, if Americans are being killed, they've got to keep spinning. Well, to Ukraine now and to the short-term career prospects of General Valery Zaluzhny, Commander-in-Chief of Ukraine's Armed Forces. Rumours have been swirling for some weeks that there has been some sort of falling out between Zaluzhny and President Volodymyr Zelensky. Over the weekend, Zelensky appeared to confirm that he is pondering a reshuffle of Ukraine's military leadership and possibly its government more broadly. The pair appear to hold different views of Ukraine's prospects. A recent essay by Zaluzhny for the economist warning that Russian capitulation is far from inevitable. Well, earlier I spoke to Yaroslav Trofimov, chief foreign affairs correspondent of the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, the Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Zelensky and Zaluzhny have had the frictions for a long time. Zaluzhny is very popular in Ukraine, is very popular among the armed forces, among the personnel. Zelensky is a politician, a political leader who has to look at more than just military considerations when making decisions, and sometimes they clash because sometimes the political logic led in a different direction from the military logic. 
And there was apparently an effort or a plan by some people in the presidential administration to remove Zaluzhny. That hasn't happened. Zaluzhny remains in his office. And I think everyone realizes just how fraught and dangerous it would be to do so at this moment in the war. A lot of Western governments have also been advising Zelensky that Ukraine has enough problems right now, <laughs> especially with the deadlock of Western funding, that it's not the time for this set of, sort of decisions. That was Yaroslav Trofimov from the Wall Street Journal speaking to me earlier. We will have more of that interview in an upcoming daily. Um, Stephen, first of all, does this seem like any more than the usual tensions that exist between, well, tensions exist between civilian governments and the military at the best of times, and indeed so they should, um, but they are even more tense during wartime? No, you're absolutely right on that one. But I think also, going back to this Economist uh, article that Zaluzhny had published um, in November, um, I think there's been a major misunderstanding on the part of uh, Zelensky. Um, Also, I think there's a very bad translation into English. Um, They are talking about, uh, they they say that Zaluzhny was talking about the war becoming a stalemate. Mm. He wasn't. He was talking about the war becoming deadlocked. Now, there's a difference. Stalemate if you think of a, chess, a game of chess, is where you get to the point, well, well, there's no point going on because no one can win. A deadlock is a point where you say, well, we've got to a point where nothing's moving. But, and indeed in the article, Zaluzhny suggests ways that they should break out of this deadlock. That's why it's been very badly uh, translated, I think, and very badly reported that he talked about stalemate. He talked really about deadlock. Now, I think that as a result of that, if you take deadlock and you look at what he really says, then actually there's less difference between what he wants and what Zelensky wants. Not surprisingly, they, you know, they both want Ukrainian victory. Um, the, the thing I find particularly odd, though, are these, you know, these rumours that are going round. And, and again, you know, at the weekend, uh, Zelensky was talking to Italian TV and, and is reported as having said that uh, there will be changes and, and, and hinting that Zelensky might, Zelensky might be the one to go. I think there's also, though, something which has grabbed the attention of, the, of Zelensky, in particular in the Ukrainian leadership, and that is there's been a lot of talk of corruption recently. There was a story about um, a lot of money going missing, not mm. external money, but money, Ukrainian money going missing and thought to have been stolen. Um, actually, also in recent days, Transparency International has just published its latest figures, which suggest that Ukraine is one of the least corrupt countries in the world at the moment. So I think they're falling over backwards to show that they're not corrupt. And this talk of changing not only Zaluzhny, but leaders, other members of the leadership, is something I think Zelensky's rather been pushed pushed into and feels he has to placate the West at a time when there is a certain amount of Ukraine fatigue in the West. Um, Tina, as uh, Yaroslav was saying there, uh, President Zelensky is obviously a politician, but is it really feasible that in Ukraine's current predicament he would be so much of a politician that he would be keen to try and manoeuvre a potential rival out of the picture? I think that it's a kind of a um, you know a classic of, of politics that when a leader is in a difficult place, he, he has a, a cabinet shake-up. Um, <laughs> Is he going to take out a, a someone perceived to be a political rival who's also very popular um, is a big question. But I think that the salient point here is, I mean, I thought the observation about deadlock versus stalemate was it was a very good one because in the Italian TV interview, it, it appeared that Zelensky used the, at least it was translated as a stalemate, you know, admitting that the conflict had, that, that, the, that the Ukrainian offensive hadn't failed to gain very much ground. So he's got that 
um, major obstacle because he needs to keep his people with him through the winter. Russia loves to undermine and cause more suffering during these months because there's a there's a chance to do that. And then the points about the aid. You know, the EU has approved the aid package, mm -hmm. 54 billion euro to Ukraine. Um, the debate in the U.S. Congress is there. But every time I talk to an American, they bring up the corruption point. So that is very much a Republican talking point in the United States. And we can't underestimate the impact that that has. So Zelensky is really between a rock and a hard place, it seems to me. And a reshuffle is a time-honored way of, of dealing with that. I think the perception of corruption and the Transparency International, you know, ranking was uh, was quite something with that in mind um, is very important for him because Zelensky has to fight the war, but also start to think about what happens after the conflict. Um, and that's not going to be a live conversation until after U.S. elections in November at the earliest. Well, indeed so. And Stephen, given the fact of the U U.S. elections, which very much could uh, change the calculus for Ukraine in, in all the wrong ways, does Zelensky need to start thinking about those some kind of plan B? I mean, up until now, he has been full-throated victory or bust, and he is entirely entitled to that line because you know, he's right. Um, he, his country is fighting for its own survival and is fighting uh, to recover its own territory. But could the, could the point come at which he does need to take a more perhaps modest uh, view of Ukraine's prospects? I don't think he can. Um, right at the start, uh, so we're almost talking about two years ago, February into March 2022, um, there were those in Ukraine who were saying, look, maybe we'll, we should sue for peace, give the Russians Crimea and, and the Donbass, uh, and uh, let's just call it, you know, call it a day at that. Then, when the news came out about what happened in places like Butcher mm -hmm. and Irpin, the barbarity of the Russian soldiers really swung opinion in Ukraine, saying, we're not going to cede a, a centimetre of our territory to these bastards, because the way, I mean, the way they behaved is, is just unbelievably uh, inhuman. Um, and I think that Zelensky cannot afford to, to forget that. And he, his people won't let him forget that. Also, of course, so many Ukrainians now have died, not only in the battlefield, but in civilians in, in, in cities and towns. Um, people are going to say, well, what have they died for? Uh, I think that, you know, he is, he is determined to keep fighting. And I think enough people around him and the, indeed the population itself are determined that you know, they, they cannot give in to what Russia has done. It, it is, there are war crimes, it's barbaric. They, they have to keep fighting if they can get that money from the United States. And it's, there are suggestions today it might be moving forward. The Republicans are still saying, oh, no, well, we're not tying, you know, never mind tying it to the border issue, apparently, because Trump doesn't want the border issue to be discussed, the American border issue, to be discussed by Biden, because that takes something away from what's supposed to be one of his big topics. He doesn't want it to be resolved by Biden. He wants it to re remain a live issue through the election. Absolutely. Uh, and so um, that may well stop, unfortunately, may well stop the, uh, the, the $60 billion of aid going to Ukraine. Even so, 
I, I, I don't think Zelensky will back down at any time in the near future. Stephen Diel and Tina Fordham, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But on a related thought, there has not been a shortage these last couple of years of words contemplating quite what President Vladimir Putin of Russia thought he was doing when he flung his military against a neighbour which had never shown the least interest in acquiring an inch of Russian territory. Martin Sixsmith's Putin and the Return of History, How the Kremlin Rekindled the Cold War, is a valuable addition to the burgeoning field of Putinology. Sixsmith reported extensively from the Soviet Union and Russia during and just after the Cold War. I spoke to Martin earlier. I began by asking him how optimistic he was back when the USSR unravelled, whether he was among those who believed that Russia would become just another European country, like Spain, but bigger and colder. I think there was a lot of optimism. And, you know, looking at some of the stuff I wrote back then, (laughs) I kind of, you know, was slightly over sanguine, shall we say. But you have to remember, you know, this was the end of 70 years of Russia isolating itself, taking itself out of the international community, turning its back on the rest of the world. And it did look optimistic, partly because communism was gone, but also because the people who took over, Boris Yeltsin and his crew, were making all the right noises. They were saying, we do want to be part of the international community. We want to have a good relationship with the West. We want to introduce democracy. We want to have freedom. We basically want to be capitalists because we want the prosperity that we've seen capitalism produce in the West. Yeltsin was willing to go to great lengths to do that. So we had nine years between 1991 and Mm. 2000 when uh, that window was open. The window closed, not immediately afterwards, but quite soon afterwards. And um, there are questions to be asked, you know, who made mistakes? Why did that rosy future not happen? Is it all the fault of Yeltsin and, you know, corruption within the regime? And, you know, is Russia not suited to democracy? Or does the West also bear some sort of responsibility for not grasping that opportunity? That thought has been expressed quite a lot, especially in the last couple of years, that idea that Russia is in some way fundamentally, spiritually unsuited to democracy. Now, I was wondering where you came down on that, because we have had here in the studio a few years ago Vladimir Karamirza, uh, the currently imprisoned dissident, who absolutely insisted that Russia and democracy were not at all incompatible. But with all due acknowledgement of the cart he would have had to push himself, I do remember also talking here to one fairly prominent, then current, now former Baltic politician, who did say that the mistake Europeans keep making is approaching Russia as if it's a European country. And to put his remarks into context, he said it's not even a question of whether they're on our side or not. He said European politicians don't go to Australia or Japan or Chile and assume they're just like us because they're not. They're broadly on our side, but they're different. But they keep going to Russia and thinking it's just another European country. The idea that Russia's not suited to democracy has been expressed not just in the last few years, but over Mm. centuries. I mean, you can go back to Catherine the Great, who says that uh, she flirted with democracy. She corresponded with Diderot and Voltaire, and she liked the Western Enlightenment, and she thought democracy might be a good idea. And then she saw all the French monarchs getting their heads chopped off and decided, actually, we probably won't go there. But she explained why Russia was not suited to democracy. She said it was basically too big. It was a centripetal empire that you couldn't have democracy in because it would just fly apart. And the only way to keep Russia together, Catherine said, was the the, the iron fist of centralized autocracy. So that idea has been around for a long time. 
Your friend Vladimir Karamurza is absolutely right that Russia could try democracy and Russia has tried democracy. It tried it after the liberation of the serfs. It tried it after the Decembrist revolution. It tried it between February and October 1917 when the provisional mm. government wanted to introduce democracy. Khrushchev kind of flirted a little bit with the thaw and it, it tried it most recently between 1991 and 2000. But I'm sad to say that on every single one of those occasions, the democratic experiment failed and the most recent one in the 1990s failed absolutely catastrophically. I mean, the key character in your book inevitably becomes President Vladimir Putin, who does appear very much of the belief that the Iron Fist is the only thing that can clench Russia together. And again, you, you chronicle what we have come to understand of him over the period that he has been the dominant figure in Russian politics. And he, when he first came to power, seemed to be among that cohort of Russians who wanted wanted good relations with the West, who wanted to be a liberal democratic European nation. Did he actually think that at the time and changed his mind or was he always lying to us? Well, I think the key word in your question is seem, because he certainly did. I remember his first New Year's address to the Russian people where he said Russia has opted incontrovertibly for the path of democracy and freedom. We're going to respect civil rights. We're going to look outwards and have friendship with our friends around the world. And he was a protege of Yeltsin. It was mm. Yeltsin who brought him to power. So he was saying the same things that Yeltsin had said. But the Putin of those years is completely unrecognizable now, 20 odd years later. So, right, there are two explanations. One, he could just simply have been lying at the time because he knew that Russia needed Western investment and he couldn't afford to alienate the West by expounding his true beliefs of swivel-eyed megalomaniac dictator, <laughs> which he's now become. Or maybe, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he was sincere about that. And this is his narrative, that he was sincere. He wanted to be a friend of the West. And in Putin's logic, the West rebuffed all his attempts at friendship. They said no to European Union, no to NATO. The key thing is they reneged on the promises they made, or Putin says they made, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, that NATO would not advance into the vacuum of the former Warsaw Pact countries in Eastern Europe, which had served as Russia's buffer zone, its sort of safety blanket, its protection against aggression from the West. And the West, and certainly George Bush Sr., indicated that we would not move into those spaces. But what did we do over the next 30 years? We absolutely moved into those spaces. And there are now NATO forces and NATO missiles sitting right on Russia's border. Just finally, though, obviously to write a book about very recent Russian history right now is to flagrantly tempt the prospect of being overtaken by events. But nearly two years now into his attempt to take Ukraine, are you surprised that he still there, that he has not been damaged by the obvious failure of the lightning conquest of Ukraine and the shocking losses Russia has incurred since? No, I'm not surprised at all. The illustration on the cover of the book is a propaganda poster from the Second World War, which shows a Russian soldier from the 19th century waving a rifle above his head. And in the Second World War, the logo at the bottom of that was, our forces are inexhaustible. Mm -hmm. And that was a message to the Germans that, you know, however much you throw at us, we'll still absorb it. They are still absorbing it. Your point about the book being overtaken by events, it won't be overtaken by events because it's not in the business of saying what's happening in Ukraine today and it's not in the business of predicting how things will end. It's saying, how did we get to where we are? Could things have been different? Could the West have done something different? And maybe the West should just try and understand Putin a little bit more. So the book's not defending Putin, it's mm. trying to explain him 
for the West's own benefit. As the Duke of Wellington said, the whole art of war consists in guessing what's on the other side of the hill. And we've signally failed to guess what's on the other side of the hill because we haven't looked at the way Putin thinks. We haven't tried to figure out what's motivating him. And we don't really know what his endgame is. So we're fighting a battle with a blindfold on. That was Martin Sixsmith speaking to me a bit earlier. Martin's new book, Putin and the Return of History, How the Kremlin Rekindled the Cold War, is out now. Um, Tina, it, it is worth remembering that I guess President Putin will shortly be facing elections of a sort um, uh, in Russia. But are there things going on? Are there effects on Russia that sanctions are having that may actually tell against him in such circumstances as people can cast a vote? There's no question about the outcome of this election, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there isn't a, you know, a, what I call vox populi risk uh, happening in Russia. Um, I had so many thoughts while we were hearing that clip about the thousand years of, of Russian history and empire and everything else. And one of them is just the immense difficulty in holding together this country, which has a relatively sparse population across eight time zones. And one of them, uh, one of the difficulties is manifesting itself in the in the state of disrepair in uh, infrastructure across these regions, which was built during Soviet times when people were you know, kind of lured out to the Russian Far East and, and other places far from European Russia. Um, and underinvestment in public services, you know, makes what we're dealing with here in the UK with the NHS look like child's play. So Putin's ability to keep people together and support him, you know, we see Russian grannies being interviewed about how much they love Putin, but um, there's some pretty dire developments going on across Russia that I think will make his life difficult. I mean, I'm a believer that Putin is actually presiding over the um, fragmentation of what remains of the Russian Federation. Uh, and just to you, Stephen, quickly on this, because uh, you were reporting from Russia around that time as well. Were you circa the collapse of the Soviet Union among the optimists? I tried to be. And in fact, I wrote a book in 1992, published in 1993, and my conclusion was that Russia will end up with a dictatorship. Ah, is that book, <laughs> is that book still in print or available for sale? I it, believe it's available somewhere on Amazon. But um, what was it? What was it, it was called? called the, rise, might, the rise and fall of the Soviet Empire might be an interesting one for people to dig back into. Uh, but we will move on to Germany, where there is good news and bad news for unsavoury far right Yahoo Party Alternative for Germany or AFD. The good news is that they have proved that they are abundantly capable of drawing crowds of hundreds of thousands of people into the streets of cities across Germany. The bad news is that those hundreds of thousands of people are united by an ardent desire for the AFD to pipe down and or push off. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz approved of the protests in Berlin, Dresden, Mainz, Hanover and elsewhere as a strong sign in favour of democracy and our constitution and more poignantly in Germany's specific case as a demonstration against forgetting. Um, Tina, nevertheless, uh, according to current polling, the AFD are now the second most popular party in Germany at about 20%. That's down slightly from a recent peak, but still well ahead uh, of Schultz's Social Democrats. Um, why are they popular? Do we understand their appeal as yet? Well, so they they have grown in popularity, the mm. alternative for Deutschland, on the back of, we could call it a combination of anti-green policies, 
uh, on the one hand, and anti-immigrant policies. And that's always, especially the anti-immigrant, has always been fairly powerful, although the protests underscore how much they've crossed the line. But but being more popular or as popular as Olaf Scholz is not saying very much <laughs> in, in today's Germany either. And, you know, I, I think that the, the Zeitenwende that um, was promised... Um, the electricity um, and the, the transition away from, from Russian gas dependence um, has really hurt German industry, long story short. And I think that storyline is being obscured um, with the large-scale crowds coming out to protest what was a very unsavory um, leaked story about mm. AFD leaders you know, meeting with far-right leaders to talk about trucking out uh, immigrants in, in in literally in in trucks deport, deportations um so that's uh, that was a catalyst for the protests um but what has uh, supported the AFD is in part the fact that German industry is a bit adrift and the energy transition hasn't worked very well that plus dependence on China uh, we should emphasise, uh, Stephen, that the AFD are not some sort of brand new novelty act. It has existed for 10 years. They hold 78 of the seats in the Bundestag, which is slightly more than one in 10. Um, those revelations that Tina refers to, though, they can't really have surprised anybody, can they? It was it was fairly clear what... It's always been fairly clear with AFD what has been bubbling away a very short distance beneath the surface. It has, and I would sort of chip in as well that um, there are certain resentments, I think, still bubbling under the surface in Germany about East and West. There mm. are those who live in the old East Germany. AFD who, being much more popular in the East. In the East, yeah. And and those who many live, who live in the East sort of still feel that even more than 30, 35 years this year, it'll be since um, the, the Berlin Wall came down, um, in that time that the eastern part of Germany has not had the same advantages as the western part of Germany. Um, added to which... It's also it's not only it's not unique to Germany. Um, look at Trump in America. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I'm, one, I'm tempted to say that you know the Conservative Party in Britain is you know alternative for Großbritannien, um, <laughs> because some of their ex- right wingers are pretty extreme too. There, there is this this movement, this mood uh, around the Western world at the moment, which. Um, Certainly, I for one find rather worrying, um, and I think it's being it's being shown in in Germany for the reasons I've just given, and indeed the ones that Tina gave before. Uh, Tina, are these protests a new way, and who knows, a more effective way of respond responding to the kind of uh, populist tantrums we've been talking about AFD, Trumpism, Brexitism, because I think there's been a complacent assumption that because these things are to a large extent driven by quite unhinged and uninformed people, that they will tend to burn out uh, due to their own manias and ineptitude, which can happen, but it doesn't stop things happening like Brexit being voted for and Donald Trump getting elected once and possibly a second time. So, I mean, it's it's a great question about the, the kind of durability of the populist mm. franchise, which has a great um, capacity to reinvent itself with the issues du jour. Uh, after the car crash that was Brexit, you know, one, one notices that no other European, um, you know, populist party campaigned <laughs> on, an, on an exit platform. That suddenly didn't look like such a great idea. Um, but it was replaced by this seemingly winning combo 
of anti-green, you know, backlash, changing the the, the boiler stuff. You Les here, we had here in the UK, and and Germany had similar um, kinds of of policies. But the patchwork of European populism is um, is not a very uniform trend, right? So in in Scandinavian countries, in Sweden, we've seen some successes, again, with a, a lot of emphasis on the anti-immigrant side. In Spain, much less so. Um, France always, you know, uh, ebbs and and um, and flows in in its support. Um, but the important thing here is that we don't have elections scheduled in uh, national elections scheduled in France or Germany this year. We do have European parliamentary mm-hmm. elections. And so we probably will see um, the the far right and the populist groupings do rather well, and that'll be regarded as a bit of a, a bellwether. Um, but these are nonlinear trends, and I suppose that's where I would leave it. The populism is not overtaking Europe, and once in power, they don't have a great record. <laughs> well, indeed not, uh, which is, is something. The trouble is they keep getting there. And just a final quick thought on this one, Stephen. Is there an argument that making a thing of these populist parties, of staging, for example, large demonstrations, thinking that they're a menace, you know, proclaiming that they're a menace to our democracy and our constitution, crying wolf, if you like, it, it does kind of work for them. That's the reaction they want, isn't it? Uh, I think you can argue both sides of that. Um, The fact that, you know, estimated 150,000 people went out on the street. They spent their Saturday afternoon on the streets of Berlin in front of the Reichstag um, protesting um, is a sign. It's grabbed headlines. We're talking about it now. Um, So... AFD may say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, we have more, pop, you know, uh, more publicity as a result." Uh, but I think other people in Germany might think, "Hey, actually, yeah, it wasn't just in Berlin either, as you mentioned, mm. in a number of cities." Um, so I, I think people standing up and saying, "Hey, hang on, wait a minute, you know, we don't like this," um, is no bad thing. Well, we will move finally to Paris and further reason to celebrate the eminently sensible citizens thereof. A matter of weeks after they voted to expunge from their streets the menace of the rented e-scooter, they have voted to triple parking charges for SUVs on the grounds that the four-wheel drives are large, polluting and of debatable necessity in an urban landscape not known for marshy bogs, gravel roads and rock-strewn inclines. Um, Stephen, first of all, are you in favour of of this, do you support slugging SUV drivers triple to park their behemoths? <laughs> I probably am, but in, in London, um, listeners might not be aware, we tend to call them Chelsea taxis, mm. because people who live in, uh, in the area of Chelsea, rather a nice middle class area, um, often will see parents taking their children half a mile down the road to school in their rather large and gas-guzzling uh, SUV. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think it's absurd if you live in a city like London or Paris that, that you have one of these things, uh, unless you spend your weekends. You may have a country estate, maybe, but leave it there, you know, have a little <laughs> run don't, around Don't, don't we all? No, um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm rather in favour of that, but I, what, there's, a, there's an undercurrent to all this that I, I am anti, and that is this move in big cities at the moment to squeeze out all cars. Um, Here in London, uh, and I live in North London, in 
uh, an area known as Enfield, which is often called Enfailed because of the council who are terrible, who've got a billion pounds in debt. Um, and yet they keep spending money on things that we don't want, like low traffic neighbourhoods, which um, they they say, oh, it reduces traffic. No, it doesn't. It just pushes it further onto the, onto the roads around about. And I actually live in one. And the roads around us now are far worse than they ever were before the low traffic neighbourhoods were introduced. Um, they're now wasting more money on creating a little parklet, which is literally a stone's throw. Even I, with my poor throwing arm, could throw a stone to the nearest park. And, and they're saying that this is, this is a great thing so the children can play in the street. Um, th- there are so many parks near us, they don't need to. So uh, I'm very much against this move to say, oh, we should all be cycling and walking and, and, and not using our cars. How do you go to the supermarket and fill up if you, uh, you know, with all the goodies you need for, for, to feed a family for the week uh, on your bike or walking? You need a car for certain things. Um, are these enterprises, these endeavours, these initiatives, was the word I was grasping for there, Tina, at all undermined by the turnout? You can see what Paris is trying to do. They're trying to make it say that, like, this is the people's voice. This is what the citizens want. Um, the vote to triple parking charges on SUVs was 54.6% of a 5.7% turnout, which is not a sweeping mandate. Uh, the entirely correct and righteous vote on e-scooters was 90%, but of an 8% turnout. I mean, the argument, I guess, in f- that I'm sure the Parisian burgers would make is you can only count the votes in front of you. If we, people don't turn up, we can't be blamed. But... Is this really the best way to go about making this kind of policy, claiming a a mandate on these extremely dubious numbers? I come from the state of California, which is famously uh, nearing ungovernability because of its reliance on what are called ballot initiatives. Mm. Um, And they do often get people out to to the vote, but they are very much in the category of of window dressing. I'm thinking about the stats for people voting against the e-scooters versus the the much smaller number against the SUVs. You have to imagine that a lot of SUV drivers didn't like the e-scooters, but, you know, (laughs) it it, it didn't go both ways. These are gesture politics. Um, And whilst I'm not a car driver in the in the first place and and you know I'm I'm an, I'm an urbanite who cobbles together a way to to live in London without a car and still feed a family just about um I wonder from a policy analyst perspective what are the unintended consequences because presumably you also don't want to hurt the local you know boulangere um by not not allowing um some subset of of their supporters to to park. So I, I, I'm with Stephen that the you know the the unintended consequences of these well-meaning kind of green slash eat the rich policies <laughs> um, can can backfire. You know, and 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 not only not accomplish what they are intended to, but make a lot of other things worse. Tina Fordham and Stephen DL, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Equay. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.